we are celebrating the Advent season together by contemplating the, the birth of Christ. We've been in a series over the last several weeks called Come and See His Wonder. And every week we're looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 21, and we're looking at them through a slightly different lens. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that first we looked at the wonder of Jesus' arrival. Then we looked at the wonder of Jesus's humanity. And then today we're looking at the wonder of his glory. Now we've been talking about this word wonder and the definition of wonder is this. It is, wonder conveys a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, or inexplicable. Can you recall the last time that you felt a sense of wonder, that you experienced a true sense of wonder? Think about it for just a moment. After last week's message on the humanity of Jesus and the picture that we had of of Jesus as a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, I was reminded of the birth of my own two boys. I was reminded, I guess I'll never forget how, it, how I felt after 30 hours of labor, with no drugs, by the way, and what it felt like when that doctor laid my baby boy on my chest and I held him for the first time. You know, all the pain and suffering disappeared behind the wonder of holding my son in my arms. And then five years later, when my second baby was born, that wonder was renewed all over again. I was just as awestruck the second time as I was the first time. There's something about, about, there's something inexplicable about how the pain and the beauty of birthing a human being into the world, which awakens this kind of love in you that you've never experienced before, that actually enables you to, to selflessly care for another person like you've never cared for another person before. But you know what, the birth of Jesus was more than just a miracle of childbirth to his parents, Mary and Joseph. The the birth of Jesus made the glory of God manifest on earth. The glory of heaven came to earth the moment that Jesus was born. So this morning, I want to talk about this word glory. It's a word that we use a lot around the Christmas season. We sing a lot about glory in the songs that we sing. But what does glory mean? What does it mean? We try to simulate glory with the lights that we hang on our homes, or even as we have this beautiful art display outside. We're trying to simulate the glory of God with the brilliance, right? But what is it? What is God's glory? What is, how, how do we experience God's glory? How is God's glory revealed? Where can we go to see God's glory? And how do we respond when we have an encounter with God's glory? So today I just want to kind of pose two questions. What is the glory of God and what is our response? Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 2 and then let's read together this very well-known Christmas story beginning at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We'll stop there for a moment. I wonder if we've become so familiar with this story that we've lost a little bit of the wonder about what actually happened. Because often I, when we think of shepherds in the Bible, we, we think of the biblical examples like David, whose role as a shepherd was actually a preparation for him to be king of Israel, where he would actually be caring for God's people So the role of shepherding in scripture often symbolizes God's care for his people. We know Jesus comes and identifies as the good shepherd. So when we think of shepherds, we often think of people who have great honor and esteem in Jewish society. But first century shepherds were not actually people who were considered honorable or full of esteem. Actually, first century shepherds were the lowest echelon of civilization they were actually viewed as outcasts. So they were dirty. They stunk like the ground they slept on and the animals they hung out with. Shepherding was very non-glorious work. Um, And because they were considered physically unclean, then they were also considered ceremonially unclean. They were not allowed to go into the temples to worship. And because everybody knew that a shepherd couldn't go to the temple and worship, everybody then distrusted them. They were considered less than. They were not even allowed to give a testimony in a court of law because their word was considered untrustworthy. They were looked down upon. They were despised. I wonder if maybe this is how we might feel towards a homeless person laying on the streets of Portland. You know, if we might look at a homeless person who hasn't had a shower or a clean bed in months, And we might step around them. We might look the other way. We might consider them unsafe or untrustworthy. And this is who God sent his message to of good news. Isn't that astounding? He sent his message to the outcasts, the ones who are out in the dark, hanging out in a life of simplicity, guarding the sheep from predators. Now, at first... Just one angel appears, we find in the story. Just one angel appears to the shepherds, but the glory of God is manifest in this angel's appearance, and the shepherds are terrified. Can you imagine? Imagine how brilliant the light was of this one angel against the backdrop of the night of these shepherds who are far away from any candles or, or, or lanterns of any kind. They're out in the middle of the darkest of night, and the shepherd appears to them, and you imagine that the glory of the, the, the shepherd's light would have just startled them to the core. So what is this glory? What is it? What did they see? Let's talk about glory. Because throughout the, the, the Bible, glory is associated with God's visible and active presence. So when we think about glory, we think about images like words like splendor, beauty, magnificence. We think of radiance. We think of rapture. Glory is a divine quality, so only God has glory. 
So the glory of God, whenever the glory of God is seen in scripture, it's a, it's a revelation of his greatness. It's a, it's a peek into his transcendence. And it's often experienced, it's often associated with huge and powerful experiences on earth. So in Psalm 19.1, for example, David exclaims, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. In Psalm 29.3, David says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God thunders the Lord over the waters. Humans are always inspired when they encounter the glory of God. But it's hard for us to find words to to describe our experiences. So like the psalmist, we often try to look to nature to help explain our encounters with God's glory. You know, we think of his brilliance as being like the sun. We think of his infiniteness as being like the stars in the heavens. We think of his power as being like the raging sea. We think of his voice as being like thunder. We think of his artistry as as being like a sunrise or a sunset. I live in a home that sits upon the top of Iron Mountain here in Lake Oswego. And I have the most glorious view of Mount Hood from my home, especially in December when the colors are so vivid in the sunrises. Um, They literally just take my breath away sometimes. And often I'll stand on my veranda in the morning and I'll look out and I'll see the scene is the lake of Lake Oswego in front of me and then, and then Mount Hood straight ahead. And in the morning, if I get at there at just the right moment when the sun is cresting the horizon and the colors are like red and orange and yellow and pink, and it is so beautiful. It's just so beautiful. And sometimes when I'm standing there, it's like the whole valley is filled with fog. And so between me and the mountain, there's this sea of fog, and it feels like my toes are just on the edge of this lake of fog, and I'm looking out, and I'm seeing this beautiful artistry of God's creation as he paints the sunrise. It's like it's just me and him. And you know what I do? I grab my cell phone camera, and I start taking picture after picture after picture after picture, and it doesn't matter how many pictures I take because nothing compares to what I see with my naked eye. Nothing. I can't show anybody what I've seen because I can't capture it. It's like God is just saying, this moment is for you, real time, and it can't be saved for later. Well... In those moments, I'm inspired. I'm inspired because I remember that God is still God. He is still the artist of his creation. He is still on his sovereign throne. No matter how messed up the world seems, God is still God. And he reminds me that I can still trust him. But in those moments, I'm confronted with the glory of God, and I have no words to even express what it's like except to compare it to something in nature, try to explain it to someone who can't, who can't see it with me. The Bible is just full of images of God's glory. In fact, the glory of God is just woven throughout the whole biblical account. We know that Moses encountered the glory of God on Mount Sinai when, he, when God gave the law to him for Israel. 
But God's glory was veiled so that Moses could actually draw near to the presence of God. Exodus 24, verse 16 and 17, it says that the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. God's glory is both sacred and dangerous, right? The one who beholds God's glory feels a sense of awe and fear simultaneously. We can imagine that's how the shepherds felt, right? They were afraid when they saw the glory of God. And Moses, when he saw the glory of God, then you know what he wanted? He wanted to see more of God's glory. What he saw wasn't enough. He wanted to see more. And so he says to God, show me your glory. I want to see more. He says this in Exodus 33:18. He says, please show me your glory. But God explained to Moses that it was impossible for him to actually see the fullness of God's glory and live. And so he told him that he was going to actually stick him in the cleft of a rock and he was going to put his hand over him as his glory passed by. And then rather than really giving Moses the image of his glory that Moses expected, God showed him his divine nature through a pronouncement of his character traits. Look at verse 34, chapter 34 of Exodus, verse 6 and 7. As the Lord passes by Moses, as Moses is tucked in the cleft of a rock with God's hand over him, his glory passes by. But rather than just letting the brilliance of that light display the glory of God, Moses, God speaks to Moses and describes who he is. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. God knew that Moses' desire to know him was better met with words than it was by a blinding light. So God veiled his glory in words as he revealed himself to Moses in ways that Moses could really understand. Now, as we look at the Old Testament, God commonly expresses his glory in light or fire, in the brilliance of this kind of light and fire. But it is so intense, it has to be shrouded. It has to be covered in some way. With proper veiling, God's people understand that when God's glory appears, that God is present with them. But without proper veiling, God's glory would destroy them. We see this in the Shekinah glory. As, as Israel is going through the wilderness, we see that the Shekinah of glory with God led them in a, in a pillar of cloud by day, in a pillar of fire by night. We know that when they gathered to worship in the tent of meeting or later in the temple, the Shekinah glory would settle on the temple and it would display to them that God was with them. His presence was with them. We know that in Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, when the prophet Isaiah goes and he sees a vision of God lifted up in all his glory, the train of his road is, road is filling the temple, and he sees the vision of the seraphith praising him, singing, holy, holy, holy. It's a powerful vision that, that set Isaiah off into his calling to be a prophet of Israel. 
In fact, later, Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah 40, verse 5. He said, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And in Luke chapter 2, the angels announced to the shepherds that this day has finally come. That the glory of the Lord has come to earth veiled in human flesh. A baby lying in a manger. And the angels say, this is good news of great joy for all people. All people are going to get to behold the glory of God. All humanity is impacted by Jesus' coming. And did you notice in this passage that, that the angel reveals three titles to describe the identity of Jesus? The good news is that he is Savior, Christ, or Messiah, and Lord. This is the only place in Scripture where all three of these titles come together in one place. So the fact that the angels are announcing that he's Savior, it means that Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. That, that he is going to deliver them from, from sin and death. When he calls, the angel calls him Christ or Messiah, it means he's the anointed one. He's the promised Old Testament Messiah that they've been waiting for. And when he says Lord, he's saying Jesus is God. He is ruler and maker over all things. He is, he is the one to, that will overcome sin and that will overcome the forces of evil. So once again, God is revealing the glory of Jesus' identity through words. He's revealing who he is and who his son Jesus is through words to those who are humble and are open to listening. And then just as suddenly as that first angel came and went, we find that now a whole army of angels appear. Can you imagine how the sky lit up? A whole army. And they sing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace with those whom he is pleased. So heaven's glory has come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ who is going to establish peace between God and man through the forgiveness of sins for all who receive him by faith. The glory of God is revealed in Jesus Christ. If you want to see the glory of God, you just have to look to Jesus. As Jesus' earthly life unfolds, we find that, that through the pages of the New Testament, the evidence of his glory only increases Back in the Matthew account, Matthew 1.23, we find that Jesus, right from the start, he's called Emmanuel. He's called God with us. And Matthew 1.23 says that he had come from heaven to earth, veiled in human flesh. Then we go later into Luke chapter 9, when Jesus took James, John, and Peter up to what we now call the Mount of Transfiguration. He took these three closest disciples up to the mountain to pray, and as he was praying, verse 29 says, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. It was as though in that moment, God just pulled back the veil of Jesus' human flesh and allowed these three dearest friends to see him in all his glory. And you know how they responded? They were afraid. They were scared when they saw his glory. So again, what did God do? He spoke words to them. He spoke words to, to reveal the identity 
of Jesus. He said to them, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. You see, God often displays his glory through words that reveal his identity. The apostle John understood this very well when he identified Jesus as the word. Look at John chapter one. We find that that John describes Jesus as the word. And remember, John was at the transfiguration with Jesus when he saw his glory. And so John describes it. He says, in the beginning was the word Jesus. And the word Jesus was with God and the word Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light, the glory of men. And the light, the glory, shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then down in verse 14, he says, And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, John understood that Jesus is the revelation of God's glory on earth. Jesus is the presence of God with people. Jesus is the divine revealer of of God's character. He is the agent of God's mission to forgive sins and to restore relationship between holy God and sinful man. Jesus' glory was announced at his birth, It was seen in his life, in his teachings, in his miracles, and it was witnessed in his death, resurrection, and ascension. And we know even that Stephen, the first martyr, when he was being killed, he looked up into heaven and he was able to see Jesus standing in all his glory at the right hand of the Father. And Paul, who was on the road to Damascus, was confronted by the glory of God in such a way that it, it caused him to repent of his sin and to have a complete change of identity and mission. In fact, Paul writes so much about the glory of God. He describes him as the Lord of glory and he speaks of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15, Paul describes Jesus as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And the writer of Hebrews describes Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. So if you want to see the glory of God, you only have to look at Jesus. Jesus reveals God's glory. So the question becomes, how do we respond? How do we respond when we see the glory of God in Jesus? We can go back to our passage and we can see how the shepherds responded when they heard the message of this good news. Let's look at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary 
treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The shepherds received this good news from the angel. And you know what they do? They're compelled. They're compelled to action by what they've experienced. They are not unfazed by any way, shape, or form. They actually didn't think, oh, should we wait till morning? Or, oh, should we worry about the sheep that we're going to leave behind in the pasture? They didn't even consider those things. They were compelled by the revelation of this good news to go and see what God wanted them to know. Notice what they say to each other. They say, let's go. Let's see. You know, let's understand what the Lord has made known to us. It says they go with haste. I imagine they just dropped everything and ran across the fields as fast as they could. They were eager to experience what God had graciously invited them to know. In other words, they had seen God's glory, right? They had seen God's glory in the brilliance of the angel's appearance. They had seen God's glory in the words that invited them to know this babe in a manger, God's glory come to earth. And they were, are responding to what they had encountered with pursuit. They, they can't wait to know more. Just like Moses, right? Moses saw the glory of God up on Mount Sinai. And what's he want? He wants more of God's glory. He wants to see more and know God more intimately. The knee-jerk response of the shepherds is to pursue, to pursue God. Now, Mary, she also wanted to know more, but her response was a little bit different. We learned that, that Mary pondered these things in her heart she wanted to deeply contemplate the meaning of what she was experiencing. So unlike the shepherds who are racing across the field to see what happened, Mary is with Jesus, quietly contemplating all these things. Now she had many months to think about these things. She had many months when, when he was in gestation in the womb where she was contemplating what this all meant. This wasn't her first opportunity to contemplate these things. She was a participant in bringing the glory of God to earth through the birth of Jesus. But I imagine that she's just awestruck over what has happened and she, she wanted to be very thoughtful about how she should respond. But beholding God's glory requires a response. When we encounter God's glory, we, we must respond. After Moses encountered God's glory on the top of Mount Sinai, he actually bowed his head to the ground and worshiped. Exodus 34, verse 8. He bowed to the ground and he worshiped. After the, the shepherds saw the glory of God in the manger, they went back and they rejoiced, they praised, they worshiped, and they told everybody they knew about what they'd seen. Mary, though, she responded by deeply pondering, by contemplating what was happening, and she was preparing herself for her participation in God's kingdom purposes. How are you responding to the glory of God this Christmas? God reveals his glory to us so that we'll respond. I think he wants us to respond with hope, in the midst of a lot of things that seem hopeless. I think he wants us to respond with faith, to trust him that he's still on his throne. And I think he wants us to respond with pursuit, to run after him, to want to know more about him. You know, today, Jesus isn't a baby in the manger anymore. Jesus is exalted in heaven. 
He is fully God and fully man in his resurrected state, exalted in heaven at the right hand of God. He will be coming back to reign in glory on earth, but in the in-between, he has given us his glorious Holy Spirit who's with us all the time, who lives in us, who's with us. And because we have his Holy Spirit, we actually can experience what it means to be compelled to worship. It's his spirit in us that actually makes us into worshipers, that makes us respond to the truth of who he is through his word in a state of worship. Worship is actually more than just singing songs on Sunday. Worship is more than that. Worship is ascribing honor and, and glory and worth to God. It's, it's adoring him from our inward being. And yes, it happens as we sing, but there's so many other ways in which we experience and express worship with our everyday lives. Let me share some with you so you can think about how you might worship God more fully in your own life. One is by meditating on his word, just like Mary did, meditating on his word, pondering his truth, soaking your heart in scripture, burying scripture into your heart like a treasure, Letting scripture be a regular part of your life. Um, living, living into what God tells you in his word is by applying his wisdom, his guidance, and his truth to your life. Secondly, is we worship God by exalting him in singing. That is part of it, right? But it's not just singing to hear if our voices are in tune. It's singing these words as if we mean them as if we're declaring them as truth, as if we're, we're praising God with these great, great words of adoration like they're coming from our own soul to him, making them true in our soul as they leave our lips. A third way that we worship God is trusting him in prayer, acknowledging that he is the place to go every day to praise and to thank and to lay down our petitions. When we trust him in prayer, we relinquish our cares to him completely, and we, we allow him to sort out the details on our behalf. And we trust that he is working providentially behind the scenes of our lives at all times. We worship God by following his instructions. By just agreeing that his word is true and that what he says is for our best good. So that we can grow in spiritual maturity and, 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 and in godliness. That we agree that what he says is good for us. We can worship him by pursuing him in faith, desiring to know him more, coming, drawing near to him with a desire to experience his glory and to know him more fully. We can worship him by telling others, you've got your my five, it's a great place to start. Who will you tell? Who will you invite? And not just telling others about Jesus, but allowing your own story to be told about how Jesus has transformed your life, enthusiastically sharing your own testimony in such a way that, that it becomes contagiously exciting for someone else. Someone else is curious and wants to know this, this person you call Lord and Savior. And then also by reflecting his glory into the darkness of our world. The thing about God's glory is that it's a communicable attribute. When the angels came with a message of good news, they reflected the glory of God. When Moses came down off the mountain after spending time with, Jesus, with, with God, he reflected the glory to all the people of Israel. When you and I spend time with God, we reflect his light into the darkness of our surroundings. Spending time with Jesus 
changes how we are perceived by others because people can look and know you're spending time with God. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, and we all know with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Spending time with God changes us from the inside out to become more like Jesus. So the wonder of God's glory compels a response. It just compels a response. You know, on the day after Christmas, December 26, 1986, when my son Adam was born, yes, I spent 30 hours of labor on Christmas night. You put that together. My husband, Bob, was at the receiving end of his birth. And he describes the experience as being completely overwhelmed with both tears of joy and tears and tears. He says he was, he was laughing and crying simultaneously, seeing his son being born into the world. The experience of wonder for him was so emotional that he couldn't help himself. It was impossible for him to remain unfazed in that morning, moment because he had had such an experience of wonder. Are we unfazed at the glory of God this Christmas? Is it ho-hum, oh well, been there, done that, another season coming round? Or is it, wow, Jesus brought God's presence and glory to earth? Are you ascribing worth to his name in worship? Are you rejoicing in the revelation of God with us, Emmanuel? Are you delighting in the fact that he is your savior, your Christ, and your Lord? Let's pray. Father, help us to see your glory. Will you strip away all the things that hinder our hearts and our minds, our souls and our eyes from seeing you as you truly are. Your coming to earth as a babe in a manger 2,000 years ago changed everything, changed everything for us. We praise you and thank you for your perfect plan. We praise you and thank you for your spirit who comes to live within us and enables us to truly worship you. We praise you, Lord, for this, this Christmas experience where we are able to remember the wonder of your glory and bring our hearts before you in a sense of true worship. Would you help us? Help us to worship you as you deserve. And we pray that you would do this in the name and the fame of Jesus. Amen.